Um, but it, what we learned is it's it's a lot less about cooling and a lot more about removing, if that makes sense. And so that was actually something we learned early on that helps me a lot uh, when I finally broke down and bought one of these uh, you know Bitcoin ASIC miners recently. Mm-hmm. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Archetype Wealth Partners or its advisors. The mention of different asset types or securities do not constitute a recommendation for our clients. If you have any questions about the content of this podcast, please contact your advisor. In this episode of Navigating Bitcoin's Noise, I'm joined by Sawyer Miller. Sawyer is a tenured software executive that decided to journey into at-home Bitcoin mining in his spare time. In this episode, we discuss the process, pain points, learning, and joy that goes into setting up your own Bitcoin mining rig at home. Stay tuned until the end to find out the unexpected power and surprise of having the ability to mine monetary value. If you're looking to better understand Bitcoin's past and its future potential as an economic network, then join us and listen in. All right, everybody, thanks for joining today. I have with me Sawyer Miller. Sawyer is at Risk 360 doing some cool stuff in cyber. And uh, recently I saw him post on LinkedIn, a, a pretty passionate post about his hobby of mining Bitcoin at home. And I know that's uh, something everybody's interested in. Very few people do. It's tough, it's hard, but it's also fun and rewarding. So want to have Sawyer on and Sawyer, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself, background, and then we'll get rolling into what got you into setting up an at-home miner. Yeah, thanks, Kane, for having me. Um, so I'm a, a senior manager at Risk360. We do uh, compliance, um, security, and privacy work for customers. Uh, we help them implement programs that essentially meet their security and compliance goals. Uh, I think simply put, I had a lot of experience in the software world prior to getting into the consulting side, um, but I really love it here. I love the types of clients we serve. It's mostly high uh, high tech or high growth tech companies, a lot of B2B, you know, SaaS companies, uh, startups who grew super fast. And now they have the big customers asking them a lot of security questionnaire type questions and uh, they need to mature that security side of the house. So that's where we come in. One thing we talked about and we can get to it a little bit later, but you're seeing through your work, uh, some areas in crypto and Bitcoin and, and just the general crypto economy where um, security Obviously, it's it's a big part of it, but some yeah. new business laws or new areas of interest that that companies and individuals are having that maybe five or ten years ago nobody was thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. So I think in general, you know, a lot of companies, if not all, are sort of watching the space because it's there's a lot happening, right? Um, but there's definitely this sort of trigger shy mentality with a lot of uh, companies still because, you know, they, they don't want to uh, get involved in, in some of these super volatile price swings. Um, but, but I also think that that's just what you see on the surface. I think there's a lot more at play. So one, one interesting thing that we've been thinking on here at Risk 360 is, um, you know, there's this kind of notion with, crypto that because it's a blockchain it's immutable you know it's you can't like fake transactions that there's this like inherent security built in and there there is uh in a sense for like the transaction side but i think uh 
you know, if you've done anything in the space, especially in the decentralized space, then you've seen that there's a whole other side of it, which is kind of the enterprise security, right? It's like, who is the company? Mm -hmm. uh, who has control of like the keys and the wallets that, you know, house the funds? Um, you know, are the smart contracts that are being developed that are, you know, doing cool things uh, truly secure? There's, you know, companies out there like Certic that can do these audits of the logic and smart contracts, but, you know, they're not bulletproof, right? And so it's, it's, it's not much different, frankly, from your traditional, you know, B2B SaaS company that we work with that has, you know, an application server and some databases and, you know, they're serving up a web app to people uh, across the internet. Um, it's very similar, right? A lot of the functionality is delivered the same way. It's just behind the scenes instead of it, you know, traveling across the internet in your typical way. Um, it's a lot of times it's blockchain transactions, but the same security flaws and weaknesses and vulnerabilities can exist on that front end and behind the scenes with the enterprise itself. So that's something we've been thinking through is, you know, this idea of like a, an enterprise assessment that has, or that takes into account the crypto nuances. That is interesting because in all this, everything's new and nobody's ever seen crypto before, Web3 or Bitcoin, and it's going to change the world because nobody's ever known it. When you, like you said, when you dig underneath and, and under the hood, it functions very much like most of our other communication channels. Um, it is more secure. It has security built in and baked in with all the key management, but the same trust questions that you typically have to ask of, a, of an organization five, 10 years ago, you still have to ask those questions. And I, I do think that's an important point that is missed out a, a lot um, yeah. just in general. There's this yeah. faith that, oh, it's this trust and a trust, trustless system. But the reality is there's nothing in the world that doesn't require trust in something. A hundred percent. Yeah. There, and the, what's even more interesting is the thing that makes it more secure is uh, immutability, right? You can't, you can't fake transactions, but you also can't reverse transactions. Right. So you think about like a data breach with a company um, that, you know, like a B2B SaaS company, let's say they get hit with ransomware. Well, if they have great, you know, backup and recovery procedures in place, they can probably come back from that with, you know, minimal damage, right? They can just blow away the encrypted database, uh, stand it back up. They might lose a little bit of data, but, and, you know, maybe some reputation damage they'll have to navigate. But aside from that, it's not like a, you know, end all be all. In crypto, it can be, right? right. If you get breached and someone drains your wallet, that's it. I mean, yeah. you've lost literally the money that, you know, is the lifeblood of the project. So uh, that, that immutability cuts both ways. Yeah, we could definitely talk for days on that. I think I think you're yeah. spot on on a lot of these points. And, and it's stuff to think about, but I think that is a good thing for the economy and new jobs and, and different avenues to kind of create just more growth and productivity. It's just a different, it's something different that we... We aren't used to yet. Um, so. Yeah, and and that immutability topic is what got me into mining initially. Like it, it, this idea of like a you know network that was running on different miners um, that allowed these transactions to process and to validate that ledger was, was kind of what piqued my interest in it. And and how did you get started in that? What was the so obviously the immutability piece got you going, got you researching. And then when did you say, I've got to get one of these miners and stick yeah. it in my house? <laughs> so I heard about it for the first time. Uh, I was in college with uh, a buddy who was telling me about uh, these new things called ASICs, the application specific integrated circuits. It was these like machines that were being built 
for a single purpose, which at the time and the topic we, we were discussing was mining. And I was like, well, what do you, what do you mean mining? You know, when I think mining, I think like a dude with a hard hat and a pickaxe, you know, down right. in a cave somewhere. Um, and he's like, no, no, this is uh, this is cryptocurrency. And I was like, what did you just say? Like, what, what is that? And so uh, it kind of, you know, immediately sparked my interest in, in like what cryptocurrency was. And at the time, the only really two that I knew anything about or had started researching were Bitcoin and Litecoin. Um, I started reading about mining and I started looking into some of the costs and stuff. There were a lot of, you know, forums and threads online where people were, you know, pretty open and sharing a lot about how to get into it um, and their experience. And Bitcoin, I think at the time was uh, a little out of my price range in terms of what it cost to build a rig to mine it. Um, I was like, I can't afford that. But Litecoin was uh, not quite there. It was trading at like a dollar or two. A yeah. Piece, I think. yeah it um, was. And uh, and so I started looking into that and you could just go buy, you know, specific GPUs that had, uh, you know, certain specs on them. Uh, build your own computer and plug it in. Uh, so, you know, I started looking into that, looked at the cost. It was like around $800 or so to build the machine. And I thought, well, at worst, I'll have a cool computer at the end of this. So, right, super high you know, power that can yeah. handle, yeah. So I was like, I'll, I'll, I'll give this a shot. Um, and my brother, my older brother was in a situation where um, he was living in a house uh, in a different state for work. Um, and his power bill was covered. So we were like, we'll just plug it in there, you know, let, <laughs> let, the, let the, uh, uh, the corporation let, take care of it. Yeah. So, so we, you know, we built these things, uh, we pretty much ran them for a summer. Um, the biggest so, problem was the heat control, but we can talk about that more. Yeah. Let's definitely talk about that. But from a cost perspective, so bat way back in the day, and, and those numbers are different now, we can talk about that, but $800 to build the rig. That's what these things are called, mining rigs. And it's mm -hmm. effectively just a computer. It's not a backhoe and you're not, you don't have your pickaxe and all that. <laughs> right. Loose boxes, none of that. Um, but all is recreated digitally. And we're, so we got a souped up computer, 800 bucks. What was that? Do you remember what that power cost was on a monthly basis? I know you yeah, guys didn't have to pay for it, which it was, was awesome. But uh, for, for the rig that we built, it was. I want to say between like a hundred and hundred and fifty dollars a month. And then roughly, do you recall like what the kickoff was on the coin? Yeah, we mined. We were we were lucky if we got a Litecoin a day. Okay, so about so, thirty Litecoins. So you got about thirty bucks. Paid one hundred and fifty to get it. Yeah, so we we didn't know what to do with it. I mean, we like it. it quickly got to a point because the, the thing with mining is the more people that mine the harder it is to yep. get a return on it mm -hmm. um it's a zero-sum game right and so like the more competition you have the less of the currency you're mining you're able to actually uh, accrue and so it hit a point pretty quickly because there are a lot of folks like me who were just super interested in this thing and they thought i'm gonna you know build my own machine um and so pretty quickly we we hit a point where you had to have like an expert level of knowledge on how to configure all the little like buttons and switches and stuff on exactly how you were mining uh, to be able to get any kind of a return. And so we were just running it with, with, I think we went a good like week and a half and didn't get anything towards the end of that summer. And so we just unplugged them at that point. Uh, we didn't know what to do with them. And, you know, we thought, well, maybe they'll be worth something one day. It was a fun project. Um, 
But uh, yeah, in in 2017, I think I think Litecoin hit like 330 a piece. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, so, and did you still have most of your Litecoin, or had you just said, "Ah, I'm done with this thing"? No, I had all of it actually. Um, Good. I. I didn't even know how to get rid of it until 2007. <laughs> so. Good, good problem to have. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. Um, and so you turn it off, but let's go back and talk about that heat dissipation and what that looks like, and and then we can step forward to where you are today and and kind of get more into the modern day. Yeah. So, you know, anytime that you're running, uh, you know, computer hardware like full bore you know, 24 hours a day, um, it's putting off a good bit of heat. And so we thought at first we could just kind of crack the window, um, put this thing in a room in the top of the house and it'd be fine. Uh, it was like less than a day before the thermostat in my brother's house is at like 95 degrees. And we were like, (laughs) what are we going to do? Like how, you know, how do we fix this? Um, and so we had to, we had to rig up some stuff, um, to kind of get that heat out of the room through that window. Um, but it, what we learned is it's, it's a lot less about cooling and a lot more about removing, if that makes sense. And so that was actually something we learned early on that helps me a lot, uh, when I finally broke down and bought one of these, uh, you know, Bitcoin ASIC miners recently. Mm -hmm. So for all the listeners, the biggest challenge to, is to avoid the fire hazard, uh, that, yeah. Yeah. And just the, like, like you're, you're fighting your H like if you're doing this thing in your house, right. You're yeah. fighting your air conditioner because, uh, you want to do everything you can to minimize the electricity bill. Mm-hmm. Um, heating the house in the dead of summer is going to cause your AC to run more and more and more, which will just drive up that electric costs, you know, and potentially burn out your, your AC unit. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of, things to consider there, right? You, and you don't want to live in 90 degree heat. So <laughs> <laughs> so then if we move forward to today or the last couple of years, what kind of miner did you have? What, how did that cost structure change and what's the difference between now and then? Yeah. So I had been tracking, um, you can, there's several websites out there. You can go look at the total hash rate for a network. And it's basically, um, of all the people mining this token, here's like the competition level. Um, they call that hash rate because it's it's literally a count of the number of hashes being processed on that network. So it's just a, a direct correlation to how many people are mining. Um, and what and that people, also is the security of the network. Yes, because the the bigger the hash rate, the more instances of the ledger or mm-hmm. or the the official record of the transactions that exist. And so it becomes harder and harder and harder the more nodes that exist to attack that because you'd basically have to at once hack like 50 percent plus one to be able to override a transaction in the ledger and that and that's what we learned from napster you know when when the feds came in and shut down napster and then all the other kazaa and all the other you know sharing programs it's that the power of the node like in a centralized world if you go and say hey jp morgan we're going to shut you down they can do that but what Napster taught us was, well, if I've got a hundred thousand or a million or three million nodes all across the globe, you can't ever truly shut the network down. And then the the file sharing, if I break the file up into thousands of tiny pieces, 
and all those nodes work on each little piece and then plug it back together when it gets to the the end place you can't ever shut that down right um, and so those components were baked into you know bitcoin and crypto in general uh, bringing those properties forward and then then adding on to that how to transfer value yeah absolutely so um so you got the hash rate down so at this point is it are, are you tied into a pool or are you just lone wolf out there trying to beat these minor pools so i for for several years uh after 2017 especially i was not uh i was not actively mining um but mainly because the hash rate was so high and i thought you know based on the machines that they're selling right now you could easily go plug in like these calculators and determine your return and i was like it just doesn't make sense but then uh i guess about a year ago a little less than a year ago uh china banned mining and so they came in and they like shut down power to all these huge you know mining factories uh essentially just warehouses of miners and if, if you go look at the total hash rate chart you'll see like a direct drop right and that is exactly the moment that i decided to go buy a bitcoin miner because the you know if you think about moore's law right as computing you know, needs increase, the computing power increases. Um, and so the same thing was happening with these ASICs. They were, you know, the hash rate capabilities were going up uh, in correlation with the total hash rate of the network. But when you have an artificial point that removes like 30 something percent of the total hash rate, uh, now all of a sudden you have a hyper performing machine. And so that's when I went and did some research on what the latest miners were. And I landed on the, it was the S19J Pro from uh and or from bitmain um and they call them ant miners but it's these were much more like uh if you picture like a do-it-yourself car project that's what i did in 2013 this was like buying a lamborghini this is like you don't do anything to it you just get it take it home plug it up and uh you know set a couple of settings and it just runs um so this thing was like a it was it was like a piece of art to me two two questions there so to explain that a little bit more to users to maybe something a lot of people have done before is play the lottery. So if the lottery is at 500 million, the population at whole in that region, most people or a lot of people are going to play. So yeah. if you go buy a ticket, your ticket, your odds are very low. But if the lottery is down at 30 million, you're still gonna have a lot of people play, but probably the people that don't really play that often that would buy a ticket at 500 aren't buying at 30 so your one ticket actually has a greater chance of winning because there's less people fighting you know in this in your case there's less people fighting to win that that bitcoin reward you know at that when that hash rate drops off yeah and i think you could you could like in that analogy you could say as you know the pool of money changes the price of the of the lottery ticket changes so your one dollar mm -hmm. can now buy 20 tickets versus just one ticket Correct. So yeah, you can increase your chances because the 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 cost it takes to try to play the lottery goes down. Yep. So when you bought the big boy miner, uh, the Lamborghini, uh, that cost structure was several thousand dollars or ten thousand, eight thousand. It was yeah, it was, was thirteen thousand uh, dollars all in. Yeah. So and, you and, couldn't and, you couldn't get them straight from Bitmain at the time um, because there was a you know a bunch of shipping logistic issues going on um so I, I lucked out and found a guy um 
in Noonan, Georgia, actually. And I, you know, I live in uh, North Georgia, so not too far away that had some brand new in box uh, miners. So I bought one from him. So that was another thing, keeping the hash rate low is people like me who all of a sudden wanted to join in because the hash rate dropped, couldn't find the supplies they need to get it done uh, because there was additional things going on in the world that was preventing that. That, you know, supply chains, but also for, for listeners, ASICs, uh, a lot of other uses for ASICs uh, with graphics and uh, think of the book Life After Google, they're messing around with trying to use ASICs to power networks and, and just all the AI and, and video and stuff. Um, so Bitcoin sort of, or, or mining in general, kind of compounded that problem of can't make the things fast enough. So when you went to put it in your house where did you put it how'd you decide and then what happened to your power bill so so there was a whole set of new problems with this one that i did not anticipate um the first one was uh something i saw coming which was the heat so i plugged it in for the first time the fans in the back it had like six fans on it uh which are actually what consume most of the power kicked on and they started getting faster and faster and louder and they started pushing out a whole lot more heat than I was ready for. So I'd kind of just put this thing in my garage in a back room. Um, and I was like, you know, I, I'm just going to crack my garage doors and I'm going to have like an inline duct fan that just kind of sucks the air out of here and pushes it into the garage. And I think that'll be okay. It was, it, it heated up 10 times faster than the, the initial one we built in 2013. It was like, it was like a hundred degrees in my garage in like two hours. Wow. Um, and I was like, okay, so I unplugged it and I was like, I got to figure something out here. So what I wound up doing is uh, I cut into my HVAC system and I, I basically had a AC duct uh, running into this room. Uh, I figured out that if I actually sealed the room, it was better because I could and then I, yeah, I put that inline duct fan uh, up in the top corner of the room and I ran a duct from there uh, and I tied it into my dryer vent because mm -hmm. that goes straight outside. And so it was sucking heat out uh, through the dryer vent, you know, pushing that outside. And then the AC was also running cool air in um, and that managed to keep it somewhere around the like 90 degree mark. But because it was just sort of a back room in my basement uh, that didn't have a thermostat in there, it wasn't affecting my AC uh, for the rest of the house. So it, it managed to work. So if we visualize that, you know, you go downstairs and you look at your HVA system and it's this metal box that has these pipes coming into it. That's effectively the same thing you did with your rig. It's just, except it's this tiny metal box. And did you actually plug the piping into the back of the fan so that that heat just goes straight out and into your other fan and push it out. Is that how it worked? I wanted to do that, but honestly, I was too scared to like break the machine because uh, I didn't want it to push any pressure back against the fans. Mm -hmm. um, so I just kind of let it sit out in the open and cleared everything out from around it. Um, sure. So it was just, it was just running in the open. How did you handle the new power bills and, and what did that look like yeah. rel relative to the actual coin you were getting? So this time it was a very different, uh, it was an immediate payoff. So I was, uh, my EMC capped my power bill at, uh, during the summertime, it was like 11 cents per kilowatt hour, which came out to be, I want to say it was like 350 bucks a month mm -hmm. to run. Mm -hmm. 
but but this thing was producing over a thousand dollars in Bitcoin a month. Um, and then when we hit the winter months, the the cap on the power actually dropped to seven cents per kilowatt hour, um, which you know percentage wise is a direct effect on that total cost. Uh, but it was still producing the same amount. So I was I was immediately making profit with this one. And when you say cap, that's all they would allow you to use, or that's the price cap? That's the price cap, yeah. Okay. So okay. I, I think it's to you know ensure affordable like heat and air uh, mm-hmm. for folks you know in rural places. So you got those caps, and you got the heat. What about the power? Because you can't just plug this thing into the wall. No, you had to uh, you had to run a so it had to be on a 220 volt circuit. Um, so like a washer dryer. Yeah. And so uh, my dad and I had, uh, my dad's an electrician, so I definitely didn't want to do this part solo. Uh, but he came over and we had to uh, basically just put a new breaker in the breaker box uh, and run a, a dedicated uh, 220 volt circuit into this room. Um, it's got like the special plugs. If you've seen the plugs that like one, one prong is this way, one prong is that way. A lot of mm-hmm. times those are so that you don't plug in 110 volt appliance. Mm-hmm. Um, cause it would, it would burn it up. Um, so we had to, we had to do that and it had to be on its own dedicated circuit, um, that could handle at least 20 amps, uh, cause the machine itself would pull like 14 amps. So, um, you know, if you know anything about the electricity side of it, that's, that's a lot of power. It was a, 30,050 watt machine uh, that was pretty much running at that 24 seven. I never unplugged it because every second that it was running, it was making money. Mm -hmm. Um, And as long as I could control the heat, then, you know, it was, it was a profitable endeavor. So I just let it run 24 seven. The other problem I ran into though, that I did not expect was the noise. Um, So, you know, we've all flown on commercial jets. You can kind of hear that like, high-pitched were when the jet engine gets started uh, it wasn't a it wasn't a jet engine level but it, it had that same kind of high pitch sound to it that just like cut through the insulation and flooring in my house like you could be in one corner of the house and you just hear this little like you know and uh i i kind of became tone deaf to it but i would have people come over and they would be like I think something's wrong with your house. What is that noise? You know? And I'm like, oh, I don't even, I don't even hear it anymore, but, uh, that was definitely it's like living next to a thing. train. Yeah. You, and it, and it never to. stopped. It never stopped. So, um, that's one thing I was happy to see go when I sold the machine. What, what did the wife have to say about all this? It took a lot of convincing. Yeah. 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 Um, a lot of, uh, Excel spreadsheets and, you know, payoff predictions and things like that. Um, she was a good sport about it. She, and, and this is where it becomes more than just like a, you know, cut and dry dollar calculation. Um, she recognized that this is something that I, I just, I wanted to do to me, this was like, you know, the Golf. grown up version. Yeah. I mean, this was like the grown up version of what I had done years ago. And this was like this thing that just fascinated me. You know, I, like I, I mentioned, it's kind of like a piece of art to me. Like I, 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 love this idea of this thing pulling you know electrons across a copper wire running it through some computer chips and doing some stuff to it mathematically and turning it into this thing that can be sold for dollars it was like it just blew my mind so like i remember when i first plugged it up i was like 
I just kind of stepped back and just stood there. It was like 10 o'clock at night. I'm standing in my garage by myself, you know, kids are in bed and I'm like, just staring at this thing, thinking like, this is insane. I mean, like what a time to be alive, you know, this is like, mm-hmm. the, I, I feel like someone who saw a car run for the first time had a similar feeling. It kind of is that analogy, right? Can you imagine standing on the streets of New York in late 1800s, early 1900s and see all these horse and buggies go by. And then all of a sudden this one dude like rolls through there with this big metal hunk on wheels and you're like, what is that? I mean, yeah. that that's kind of it. Our money has always been the horse and buggy and we're all comfortable with it and we use it. We know how it works. And it's like, well, there's nothing better in the world. And then you're that one dude that plugs in a moneymaker in his, uh, in his basement or garage. Uh, yeah. so it's kind of the same analogy. Yeah. So. So what now? Uh, did you buy a bigger rig? Are you part of a pool now? So that that was one thing I had to figure out was like, you know, what what were the pools that were out there? Because you mentioned this earlier, you can be like a solo miner, right? I could have uh, hooked my machine up to the like larger Bitcoin network and just had it run. But my chances of uh winning the lottery so to speak of finding like a and actually cracking a, a correct hash or like minute i probably would never have gotten it um I, I would have made no money so what a lot of people do is they join a pool where they say look let's let's all come together and join our computing resources and we'll split evenly across the pool any winnings that we find because basically what these machines are doing they're trying to like uh guess uh a bitcoin's hash Mm-hmm. They're trying to to guess a, a correct hash, and uh, it takes an insane amount of guesses. And that's what this hash rate is, is the number of guesses happening at any point in time. Um, and so I joined a pool. It was Slush Pool. It was one of the biggest ones. Um, I like their fee structure and stuff, and, and the payouts are pretty predictable. When I first plugged it in, uh, after I mentioned that like drop in the hash rate, it was making nearly $45 a day. Mm-hmm. Um and then over time, uh, a couple of things. One, the, the hash rate started picking back up because uh, companies in the U.S. and other countries jumped on the opportunity to uh, you know, establish a footprint in the mining industry. But also, uh, personally, we decided to sell our house and move. So uh, I learned really quick that showing a house with a Bitcoin miner running in it is not a good idea. Uh, people did not know what it was. They didn't understand why it was so hot in that room. Uh, and they didn't like the noise. <laughs> so I got a lot of questions really fast um, about this thing that I'd kind of grown used to. Um, so we decided to go ahead and sell that. Um, I sold it for, uh, it, was, it was either ten dollars or $11,000. So I made most of my initial investment on it back because uh, they're still very profitable to run. Uh, but now we're in the process of moving to another house. And to your initial question, um, I'm not sure what I'm going to do yet. I there, So there's some interesting stuff going on. I read about Intel's uh, newest machine that's coming out. That's going to be, so the one I bought was the highest hash rate at the time, which was 110 terahashes a second. Mm-hmm. The one that Intel's coming out with is 135 terahashes a second, but they've got a price point of like $5,600. So I think that's going to be a game changer. Um, and I think as we continue to see these like innovations in, the speed uh, at a cheaper price, you know, this, this network and this hash rate is just going to keep going. 
Yeah, and that that is a significantly cheaper deal, and but that's Moore's law as well. You know, computing yeah. power increases, price decreases. We've seen that in memory cards, yeah. computers, like the whole, you know, broader technology space, like cloud yeah. computing, everything. So that is pretty cool. So let me step back. You mine that Bitcoin. It's connected to a wallet or a node. The coin goes there or in your case, slush pool, send your reward to something. And then we talked a little bit about your early days. You took some of the proceeds, uh, invested in some ministries or other node projects and used some of those resources. So let's talk a little bit about what you do with those rewards and and kind of the benefits that, that you found from that. Yeah. So the Litecoin I mined in 2013, um, as we mentioned, it appreciated, you know, a lot. Um, turned into, you know, it wasn't a huge amount of money, but it was enough for me to get started and in investing in some projects. So I learned about ICOs. I learned about, you know, these different things that were happening in uh, like 2016, 17 timeframe. Um, and I, I managed to get in on uh, several ICOs then. Um, everything kind of took a big dip uh, around that time. And it took a couple of years for it to come back. Uh, but when it came back, I was in things like Engine and uh, a few other tokens that really took off, right? They went from like seven cents during the ICO to like nearly $4. Um, and so we were, you know, I, I made a, a lot of profit on those things. And I, I just continued to invest and look around. And then I landed on uh, a lot of these decentralized tokens. Uh, so these are tokens that are not traded on centralized exchanges. Um, it's done purely in like a peer-to-peer type network. Imagine like a, you know, a virtual open air marketplace where, you know, this guy could be selling something from his tent for a certain amount and that guy can be selling something totally different, right? There's, it's just kind of the wild west. Um, I got onto these uh, tokens that will allow you to like pay a lump sum to buy what they call a node, or it's a, a thing that sort of helps facilitate whatever functionality they're trying to drive. Um, so effectively actually, not much different than the, the mining process that you've been through, but just in yeah. a different capacity for their right. network. Exactly. And so uh, the way that they do that, the way they incentivize it is similar, right? They'll pay you out in their token or uh, what they call a native token, like a, you know, Ethereum or a BNB. And you basically just get paid to run this node. Now it's, it's not um the computing power and stuff that's involved is not really a factor because they the, just the way the technology works kind of removes that problem. It's just that they need participants, simply yep. put. And so I, I learned how to become a participant in these various things. Um, and to me, what's been like the most important part of this journey is, um, you know, all along the way, I was I was growing financially as an individual um, in my faith. And so I realized that five years ago or so, um, you know, we were doing okay as a couple, you know, we were, we were, you know, making it through life. And, uh, my wife and I made this very intentional decision to do what we felt led to do in terms of tithing, uh, and give 10% of our gross income upfront. Um, and it was extremely difficult. It took a lot of time and effort, uh, to make this thing work. Um, but we were, we were hundred percent dedicated to making it work. And over time, it's no coincidence to me that like these opportunities and these things I just so happened to read in a, you know, Reddit thread way down in the internet somewhere um, wound up paying off so much money. And what I've learned along the way is like the real happiness in making money, whether it's through traditional means 
in like a job or, you know, some hobby that turns into like a cool financial uh, space like crypto is the opportunity to steward that money and give it to things that further the kingdom of God. Mm. Um, and that's really what my heart is uh, set on. And so I fast forward to these like passive income things. Um, it excited me because I realized that I could, with an initial investment, set up a predictable future of giving. So I took a lot of these passive income projects, I invested in them heavily. And now today I'm able to take a lot of these proceeds and give way more than 10%, but, but to fund a lot of ministry work that's going on. And it, it's amazing to me because I realized like these things didn't happen by my own intelligence. Like it's not like I, you know, handcrafted these situations. It's just been uh, a lot of curiosity and mostly a divine appointment and intervention uh, where God has continued to trust me with more resources because I feel like I've shown the discipline to steward the resources the way he wants me to. To me, that's really what it's all about. Like you can sit on a mountain of cash, but what does that really do for you? You know, at the end of the day, what are you really doing with, with that money? Uh, you could use it to make more money and that's fine, but what are you going to do with it? You know, are you going to buy bigger houses? Are you going to give to, you know, certain charities, but what do those charities do for you? You know, do they align to your worldview and do they further what you believe is the truth of existence, right? Um, so to me, that's that's what all of this is about. Um, the day that I feel like I can't do that is the day I'll probably lose interest. That's super powerful. When you and I, when I reached out and you said, yeah, I'll come on, no idea of that segment, that part of the conversation, but it's super powerful not only because it aligns with what we do and what we help individuals do, but just the thought process. And I think if you look around the world, even though it is the most exciting time to be alive, to be able to do some of these truly innovative, fun things that that are game changers, it also is part of the problem that people don't haven't come across the mentality that you've figured out uh, at such a young age to to be a productive human, a productive individual, and to take capital create capital and then provide that out to other people in a resourceful way. Um, and I think that's probably the missing key that if we as, as seven or 8 billion people that at least 60 or 70% can figure it out, uh, Prado's principle can flip to that. Uh, the world would be a, a truly different place from what we've kind of seen. And so that's just nice to hear, uh, especially, I mean, you figured it out super early. I'm a good bit older. It took me a long time to figure it out. I, that's awesome. So, Sawyer, uh, I appreciate, you know, you joining and, and the knowledge that you shared with us today. Where can people find you or, or where are, what are some stuff you would share and, and have people go look at if, if they have further interest? Yeah, absolutely. So um, you can check out the company I work for at risk360.com. It's the number three and the word 60. Or you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Sawyer Miller. There's not a lot of us, so uh, you can probably find me pretty easily. That's pretty much it. I don't have a lot of like social media handles out there. Um, something I've not spent a lot of time developing, um, but LinkedIn is probably where I'm the most active professionally. Well, I think, in, and it just speaks volumes, just keep it super simple. You're just a, a simple dude in a good way. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think I remember early on that that was what I noticed that was different about you from all the other people that we might have worked with at that time frame is just super genuine, um, you know, down to earth guy. So that that's a good that's a good thing. No, I appreciate it. Well, thanks for coming on today. Absolutely, thanks for having me.